and um, Scott is going to come, and he's going to lead us in the reading of that passage. Let's stand together, though. Psalm 4, and um, we will study this together. Psalm 4. Answer me, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have been my relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. For there are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Lord, allow us to be strengthened uh, with your word, by your word, through your word. And Lord, that we would... Um, Seek to understand, Lord, how it is you want to work in us. Lord, as we reflect over 2014, as we think about what is coming yet in 2015 that we don't know about, would you allow your word to prepare us and to, to have the kind of mindset and, and perspective, Lord, that would certainly honor you. But Lord, help us to learn that and to grow in what we see here this morning in this text of scripture. Allow me to be your messenger to faithfully represent you and that you would be glorified in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. It doesn't take much for circumstances to change for the worse. Um, on Christmas Eve, my daughter Deanna uh, got sick and we're planning on leaving on Christmas Day and going somewhere to be with family for a couple of nights. And so I'm you know, thinking through, my daughter is sick and what's gonna happen with her? We don't wanna bring sickness to the family. And um, so I'm, in my mind, I'm thinking about all these different scenarios that can play out. And um, she um, woke up on Christmas morning and um, the fever was gone. She felt okay, just kind of weak. And I uh, thought, okay, this is good. Um, it looks like things are gonna be okay. We can follow with the plan. Um, we had our Christmas breakfast and uh, then sat down and exchanged gifts. And um, as we're exchanging gifts, my head begins to kind of squeeze. And um, it's not because of any of the gifts that my kids gave me or anything like that, but my head just started to, to squeeze and to throb and and um, I just kind of put it off, but I took some medicine, and just continued to hurt, and got to the point where it's like, I gotta go upstairs and go to bed, and, and light bothered me, and noise bothered me, and you have to understand, after we were opening our presents, and when we were done with that, the plan was for the next couple of hours was to pack, because we're gonna be going away for a couple of nights, and make sure we're ready, and we need to get off at a certain time, and there I am laying in bed. And of course, Deanna was still resting, and so my lovely wife and my son, Adam, worked their tails off to get the house all figured out and get things ready. And slowly, you know, I started to take some more medicine. And as I lay there in bed, Elia came, and it was about the time we were supposed to leave, and she says, how do you feel? And I said, I'm just not feeling any better. Why don't you just take the kids and go on and when my headache's gone, I'll just drive up and, and catch up with you. It's about an hour, hour and a half drive to where we had to go. And she said, no, no, I don't want to do that. Let's just wait. And so we waited and took some more medicine. And then finally about maybe an hour or so later, the edge of that headache just started to dissipate. It just started to feel a little better. And it was enough for me to get up and to get my, pack my bags and help pack the car. And we got in the car and we, hopped in the passenger seat. And by this time, it was after the time that we were supposed to have begin our meal at our destination. And we're, we're going to be late. No big deal. There'll still be food there, right? I mean, my wife's family, we're all the Latino, right? And, you know, I'm the, I'm the, I'm the white guy. But, um, 
you know, I, I know there's always plenty of food, right? So we'll, if we, even if we're late, there'll be plenty of food there. And uh, so as we're driving up, we find out that Grandma and Bra- Grandpa are on their way up too, and they're, they're behind us, and they're the ones that actually have the bulk of the food. So we actually got to our destination before most of the food actually arrived, and we still had to wait some time in order for the food to actually be served. And, and you know, just the circumstances that you expect aren't always what take place, right? Here I was, worried about what was going to happen because my daughter was sick, and I ended up being the issue, trying to figure out what needed to happen and wanted to make sure I was on time. And, of course, um, yeah, it all worked out in the end. We had a good time because by the time we got up there, my headache started to dissipate, and it was feeling a lot better, and it was just a, it was a great time with our family. And this is the way of the world, though, isn't it? Circumstances can turn sour fast. You have a day planned out, things change, you have a different day. Um, you hurry out of the house to get that final Christmas present, you enter the store, you find that gift, you stand in that long line only to realize you left your wallet at home. You rush to the airport, get through security, and wait at your gate, only to find out your plane has been delayed or canceled. And of course, that just has rippling effects on everything else. You're rushing to your child's Christmas program at their school, wanting to make sure you get there at a decent time so you're not tucked in the back little corner where there's no seats. You have to stand and watch. And the whole time, you're hitting every red light. And if you're not hitting a red light, you're behind that person that is not moving, right? I'm just saying circumstances change. What you normally expect to happen doesn't always happen. And so to be sure, our circumstances, circumstances um, are, are, are fickle in that sense. And often when they turn sour, we find ourselves wrestling in our heart And that wrestling can be extremely harmful if we're not careful. And that's where Psalm 4 will give us counsel. And we'll do well to pay attention to this psalm. Just look at the beginning here, to the choir master with string instruments, a psalm of David. This actually is tied together with Psalm 3. Now, there is some debate as to whether or not... um, these two psalms are actually from the same period, but it seems to be that David is writing this particular prayer during the time when his son Absalom has kind of usurped the throne and he is trying to get out there and to kill David and all these things are turned now against David. David has a following, but his son now is pursuing and trying to get rid of him. And so that's kind of the backdrop But at the same time, although that is the backdrop, this has now become a psalm, meaning it was taken from a prayer and now put into a book of songs. And what do book of songs do? They become songs for everyone. So there's a sense in which then this psalm is for everyone, may have begun in the context of David and his struggles, but now is an opportunity to sing a song in light of your own circumstances. And I want to just home in on verse 3 because this kind of lets us know who this is talking about. Verse 3 says, But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. Now, who are the godly? The Hasid in Hebrew. This is a word that describes the one loved by God and who loves him back. Right, so this word godly is talking about someone who is loved by God, but that person is also reciprocating that love. And that's simply a picture of what happens at our conversion. That's God so loved the world. And those who believe in him, those who respond to his effectual call, are the ones who are responding back in love. Those are his children. And of course we know David to be the, the chosen Uh, king by God, that'll happen later in the book of Samuel, but he's also identified as the man after God's own heart. So there's there's this reciprocal thing going on. God has chosen David, but then David also is pursuing God. And that's a, it's an ugly pursuit, isn't it? 
right? And yet, that is the tone of his heart. That's what he desires. And like I said, this is written by David, but it's also for anyone who is loved by God and who loves him back. And so if you are a true believer, you fit into this category here of godly. Not because you're worthy of that title, but because God has loved you and you have loved him back through faith and repentance in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now I want to draw your attention to two words we find in this psalm that will also help us gain a, a picture of, of what is going on here, some of, the, uh, some of the, the nuggets you might want to say or themes that are running through this. First of all, these two words begin with um, this word distress in verse one. And uh, I also want you to notice in verse uh, four and seven, this word heart. When we go through trials of various kinds, the hardest battle we fight is the, uh, in the arena of our heart or our mind, right? It's that, it's that place where we're trying to sort through everything. And I remember um, last year when I went on a trip with, um, with Keith and JD and we were going to together for the gospel and our plane was delayed and we got to our first, we got you know, through our first flight but the other flight was canceled and we're wanting to get to our destination. There's something important that we've done and, and I, I remember the battle that was ranging in my heart. It's like, you know, here I am wanting to go to, I've waited this long time to go to this conference and blah, 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 and you know, they're saying, well, we can't get you there until tomorrow at four o'clock and today was like at five o'clock and it's like, I don't wanna waste 24 hours. So you've got this, this battle that's raging in your heart. What are you going to do with that? So this is the arena because that battle rages, but, but the, 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 the outflow doesn't have to necessarily come out. Right? And so this is where this battle is raging. Now, in 2014, our, our little church has had its share of trials, and God has allowed us to rise to the occasion. I really, I'm just... I'm just really um, thankful for how our church has been so supportive and so encouraging of those who are going through difficult times. And they've done it in a number of ways, providing meals, words of encouragement, financial help, a listening ear. But most of, of all, we've been able to support one another through two um, primary means, and, and, and these are really, really important. Um, and I wanna just emphasize them a little bit today, their prayer, and sound theology. And I'm gonna reverse the order here and just, just touch a little bit on these two things, sound theology. We support one another through encouraging one another in sound theology. The worst time to learn your theology is when you are in the middle of a trial or when you're in great distress. You find yourself at the hospital, you know, you, you find yourself uh, you know, struggling in a financial crisis, whatever, you have a tendency to, to pursue things based on your emotions in that moment. And what you need desperately is sound theology to help you think through that moment. And if you haven't already laid the foundation for that sound theology, or you haven't solidif solidified that in your heart, you may find yourself listening to or grabbing a hold of theology that is weak and harmful. So by sound theology, I mean two things. I mean taking seriously the learning of theology during those times of blessing and growth. So you might say, well you know, right now things are going well. Then now's the opportunity to learn sound theology. To have it solidified, to know what God says of what suffering is all about and how he works and all that. It also means preaching that theology uh, to ourselves when we're in the trial or time of distress. And so in our heart, we're taking God's truth and we're preaching it to ourselves, saying, don't you remember this? This is true about God. This is what he says. And as I'm facing that trial, I've got to remind myself based on what I already know to be true. But if I don't have this sound theology figured out yet, then I find myself wandering for pl to places that 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 might want to say, stroke me in that moment rather than counsel me in that moment. Now by prayer, I mean that we pray, not just for relief for the person going through that trial, 
uh, or that time of distress, but we pray that they will win the battle in their heart to believe what is true. So we pray um, for whoever that might be who's going through that time of distress. They're in the hospital, they're having trouble with their, their kids, or maybe it's a marriage issue. We're praying not just for relief, but that they would allow this truth of God's, uh, of God's uh, word to impact them and to shape them and to fashion them in that moment. So sound theology, but it's sound theology that is applied now. And so we're praying that they'll apply that theology, those truths about God and his word in that particular context. And this is what Psalm 4 is about. We need to learn to fight the battle in our hearts during those times of distress. And to be sure, 2015 will have its own trouble, right? So this psalm will be a guide for us as it was for David who penned it in his distress, as it has been to God's people through the ages. It is a song sung to remind God's people how to think in times of distress. It's a prayer for all who are going through times of difficulty. So with that in mind, let's look at verse one that I'm calling our godly distress. So what is this first thing that God's children need to do? in times of distress. Here's what he says in verse one. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. And let's just think through that word distress. It literally means to be hard pressed. Another way you could define it would be this, to be stuck in a corner, right? Without a way out, at least from your perspective or to be in a tight place where you're being squeezed and pressed on every side. So this is a prayer for, uh, to, for the Lord to make space and to ease the pressure. So what can we learn from David's prayer? In our distress, first of all, we need to seek to know God's character. We need to seek to know God's character. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Now David is confident because he, he knows some things. He knows the character of the God he's appealing to. He knows what this God is like. He knows the character and attributes of this God, what qualities they have, how he will be identified, the kind of things that this God does. And David knows that God can see into his heart. And he knows that that, uh, that if God can see into his heart, that God knows what is there, and that God knows that David's claim is right before God. Now just think about David's context. He is being usurped off of his throne by his son. And so David is appealing to God, saying, listen, you know I'm right. And I know that you know that I'm right because you're the kind of God who has that character to know what is true. So he's appealing to God based on what he knows himself to be true. So this isn't David saying that his heart is perfect, but it is a heart that is in the right place before God. Yahweh is the God of his, that would be David's righteousness, but Yahweh is the God of, or the source of David's righteousness. Now just think about that. It is a righteous God that looks at us and declares us righteous. So David here is appealing to the God of his righteousness, of David's righteousness. So it's righteousness that comes from God. Okay? So David feels justified before God, but he is also acknowledging that anything good in him, that would be David, is because of God and that God's covenant with him is the basis of his appeal. So likewise, as we think about our relationship with God and how we are impacted by that, when we have been on the receiving end of distress and find ourselves pressed in a corner from slander and enemies or those who oppose us and, and before God we know that we are in the right, we appeal to the union that we have with Christ and the promises that flow out of his character. 
All right, so we go back to places like Ephesians, where we see this union that he has called us to, that he's welcomed us into, and we see all the benefits that are there. We are nothing except for Christ in us. We are helpless except for Christ at work through us, and we are guilty unless Christ has paid our debt. And God promises to hear the prayers of his children, and he wants us to appeal to him based on his character. And in doing so, to claim our right standing with him. All right, so he's, he's going and he's appealing to the character of God. Secondly, he is resting on God's faithful help. He's resting on God's faithful help. Look, read the, the next part there in verse one. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Now, there, there, it's important just to, to, to realize what David is saying. David's present prayer is based on God's past dealings. Just read that again. You, gave, you have given me relief when I was in distress. This is not the first time he's been in distress. And this is not the first time that God has helped him during times of distress. So David's present prayer is based on God's past dealings. So he knows by virtue of his own experience that God can and does help his children in times of distress. And if we're to honestly look at our lives and review our past distresses and hard places, we'll be reminded that God has been faithful to us. That even through through those difficult times, even when things kind of fall out and they're messy, God's faithfulness has always been there. And we're, we're reminded of that uh, as we think about 1 Corinthians 10.13. Turn, if you would, please, to 1 Corinthians 10.13. This is really, really helpful. It's a, it's a great passage of scripture when you're just facing an insurmountable struggle or problem. And it's a great place to land the plane in God's word and just to meditate. And I would just encourage you to do it ahead of time before these things. But it says there in 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation, you could say no trial, um, no struggle, no time of distress, has overtaken you that is not common to man. That's comforting because that tells us, you know what, other people have gone through this before. You ever been in a situation that's like, you know, no one's ever been in my situation before. Yeah, they have. It may not be exact, but it's the same kind of situation. And that actually brings comfort. And then it says, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. God is faithful, that's part of his character, that's part of who he is, and he, he knows us better than we know ourselves, but with the temptation or the trial, he will also provide a way of escape. You're saying, yeah, that's what I want, I want that way of escape, but it's not really a way of escape as we would think it, right? It's not the helicopter coming and dropping the, the ladder down and us climbing up and getting away. It's actually he provides a way out. And then he goes on and he says, that you may be able to endure it. Now see, we might be faced with this big problem. God is saying, listen, trust my character, trust my knowledge of you, listen to what I have to say, know that there is a way through this problem that is not pain-free, right? It may involve some pain. It may involve some difficulty. It may involve some hard conversations or some honesty or some seeking of forgiveness or repentance. But it is God's way through. And if we follow God's way through, he says, listen, I will give you strength to endure. Now, friends, that's all basically saying this, that in the the darkest, hardest times of distress, God's character will guide us through and ultimately will bring relief. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's gonna be like, you know, just get me out of here. He'll chart a course for you. He'll help you to move in the right direction according to his will. The third thing that we find here is this. We can pray for God's gracious hand. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. But notice David's appeal is both honest and it's balanced. Now what do I mean by that? We can be completely honest when we have come to God in our prayer. David was very, very transparent. One of the things I love about the Psalms is that you see the heart kind of in its raw condition, right? 
In other passages in scripture, you may not quite see that. You see events unfolded in the historical narrative. Sometimes you do see that, but in the Psalms, you you have all these inner workings, these struggles, these questions poured out, and David is brutally honest about what he is going through, but we also see that this is balanced because we know that even though he, or if we're praying this or singing this, even though we may be right, we're still tainted with sin and need God's gracious hand. David would not be appealing to God's gracious hand if he didn't know that he still needed God's gracious hand. See what I'm saying? There's a balance here. I'm going to be honest with you, but I'm also going to appeal and continue to appeal to your grace to carry me through. And so, friends, here we have this kind of foundational beginning. There's a trial. There's a distress. There's some kind of trouble that, that, is being, uh, that, that David is facing or that we are facing and, and the counsel here then are these three things. Seek to know God's character, but seek to know that ahead of time so that you can apply that character in your context. Rest on God's faithful help. Look at the ways he's carried you before, all right? And, and trust that he is gonna continue to be faithful to you in the present. And the third thing there is pray then for God's gracious hand. You don't deserve help, you don't deserve counsel, you don't deserve his guidance, but you're appealing to that because you know you need it. Now that kind of lays the foundation for us and now we want to go into what I'm calling our godly dealings. So we've looked at our distress and now uh, what, what David is going to do is he's going to identify three different categories um, of the struggles that he or the men around him are struggling with. And one of the interesting things about that story of David when his, his son comes and takes control is that David is surrounded by these men who are ready to do battle. They've already, they've already had to leave their homes. They're now wandering in the desert, and they're, they're just like ready. Hey, listen, you tell me, I'm going. You tell me to sick them, I'll sick them, okay? And so there are three different categories that flow out of this psalm that are really, really helpful for us as we think about how then do we deal with these issues in those times of distress. And the first one is the subject of slander, okay? Slander. Let's read it, verse 2. O oh men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. So let's just think about the nature of slander. What does it look like? It's described for us in verse, verse 2. How long shall my honor be turned into shame? Your honor being turned into shame means that you have been humiliated. Someone has said, has taken your good and they have spun it or painted it as evil. Continues on, how long will you love vain words and seek after lies? These empty words and these lies are these personal attacks that are words that are spun with innuendo that are the, the basis, or might we say the, 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 the fountain that flows out and results in this humiliation. Now, I don't know if you have ever been on the receiving end of slander, but it's a very hard and lonely place to be. It's kind of a lose-lose situation many times. Let me explain why. If you try to counter the slander, then you're further labeled by those people that are slandering you as being defensive. When, of course, in their mind, that proves that their slander is right. Okay? So you're kind of stuck. Because if I defend myself, they're going to say, well, see, you're just being defensive, and that just proves that you're actually what we say you are. But if you're silent, then your silence is used as evidence that the slander is also right. Okay? And it's a very, very delicate place to be. It's a hard place to be when you are slandered. And like I said, it's often a lose-lose situation. There's a story about a, a liberal senator by the name of Claude Pepper. You may know the story from Florida during the McCarthy era. And uh, not so much young people in here, but the McCarthy era, if you weren't aware, was the time in America's history where um, communists were rooted out. And so there was a kind of a hit list of people um, that were that were sought after to be questioned and challenged. Well, this, this uh, Claude Pepper was a, 
a sitting senator in Florida. And his opponent, a conservative um, by the name of George Smathers, lashed out with the following claims because Claude Pepper has been put on this list. He called the senator the Red Pepper. Get the connection there, right? And accused him of many vices. Here are the vices. This is what went out and what people were told about him, all right? He claimed that Pepper was a known extrovert. That his sister was a thespian. That his brother was a practicing homo sapien. And that he was guilty of matriculation while in college. The worst offense, however, was that he practiced celibacy before marriage. Now naturally, people not knowing what all those words meant believed what they were told to be true, and of course, it was true, right? Because all those words are not bad things, but they're presented in a bad light, so people think, oh, it is true, these things about him, he ended up losing the election. Why? Because someone slandered they, they used words against this person and, and painted a picture of someone to be something that they really weren't. And slander is not uncommon for Christians living in a hostile world, is it? And a lot of that comes from ignorance about what Christianity is all about. Some might say, Christians are all about keeping rules. Rules, 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 rules. Can't do this, can't do this, can't do this, can't do this, can't do this. What kind of fun do Christians have, right? That's all coming from a place of ignorance. Or how about this one? Those Christian families who spank their children are guilty of child abuse. Now, step back. It's possible that they are if what they're doing is child abuse. But simply spanking doesn't necessarily mean it's child abuse. Or how about this one? All those Christians want is your, what's that? Money. All right, that's why we have five offerings at our church to make sure that we get it all, right? Um, yeah, right? That's, that's the idea behind it, right? No, I mean, see, there's ignorance, but there's bad examples out there that people have to give them a perspective of what Christianity is about. And so there can be a lot of slander that is based on ignorance, but some slander comes as a direct attack against the church. Let me give you, let me give you one example. During my time in, in ministry in, in Russia, um, in two of the places that I visited, one was uh, Kirojapetsk, another one was Ufa, and in both of those places, the Christian leadership there told me that especially during like Christmas season or during the summer season, there would be commercials on the TV or on the radio that basically said something like this. Of course it was in Russian, but this is the idea. Be careful with the Baptist churches. If you're not careful, they will kidnap your children. Have fun at vacation Bible school. Well, they didn't have that last part, but that was the point, right? Because they know that the the church, back, and, and we say Baptist churches, don't just say, oh, that's just, the, what about the Presbyterians? No, the, the Baptist Union is the recognized evangelical church in Russia, okay? So those that are Bible-believing Christians would fit into this category in Russia, all right? This is slander. There's no intent on them to kidnap the children. Of course there's not, but that's the scare tactic that is used but it's also slander. In fact, isn't that what Nero did when Jerusalem was burning, or was it Rome was burning? He blamed it on who? The Christians. It wasn't true, but hey, why not? Let's just go ahead and do that. We'll blame it on them. But history has shown that try and try again, God's people will rise up and carry the baton of the gospel to the next generation. Slander comes, God's people are mocked, and the foolishness of unbelief seems to win the day, but it is only a skirmish in the overall battle. In the end, God knows who are his own. He stands by his children. So friends, 
That's the nature of slander, but what then is the answer to it? And here we have it in the latter part of this passage. Know that the Lord has set you apart. Now, for David, he was set apart to be king. For us, we are set apart to be his children. We are set apart to be his family. All right? We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We have been set apart from the world. And we've been brought into the company of God's people by God's choice and actions not our own. And this is the doctrine of divine election that God, before the foundation of the world, chose us. That's found right in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 3, I believe it is. This is often a hated doctrine, but it's nevertheless true. It's what scripture teaches. You may have to wrap your hand around what all that means and looks like, but if God sets his children apart, then he certainly does not abandon them. To know that the Lord has set you apart, and if he has set you apart, he has not abandoned you. No, he sticks with his children. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1 and verse 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will just leave you alone and let you sort it out all by yourself. Is that what it says? No, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of of Jesus Christ. Now, what is going on here? David in this psalm is helping us in the arena of our heart to wrestle ourselves to the place that we're thinking about this slander from a God perspective. We're taking his truth, we're taking his promises, and those are the, arena, those are the tools in the arena of the heart that get us to the place that we will not respond in sin, but will respond by glorifying God. Those people are slandering me, guess what? God knows what he's doing. You remember the story where David is, is in the wilderness, he's with his men, and there's this one guy that is the follower of Absalom, and he comes around, and he's shaking fists, and he's, he's mocking, and he's taunting him, and he's throwing stones down, and, 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 and David's, you know, one of his mighty men comes up, listen, David, just let me, let me just go take care of this guy. He's like, no, no, no. You know, maybe, maybe God is doing this. I, God is, and there's just a real big kind of, picture and understanding of the sovereign purposes of God in this whole moment. And for slander, that's one of the things that we need to do. We need to, we need to recognize that it's not the world that identifies who we are. We have been set apart by God. And so we rest in that promise, in that truth. So that's slander. Secondly, he deals with the subject of anger. The idea here is stewing over injustice and wrong. You can just see these men out in the wilderness with David just talking about Absalom and all the things that he has done and how awful it is and how terrible it is, and they are right. But that anger can stew and, and can grow in ways that leave people out of control. So like I said, this is probably David's counsel to his companions and faithful men who are fully supportive of him, but also whispering in his ear to act on his anger. But what counsel does David give? He says, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. So the first thing we see here is this. Um, he's saying do not, do not sin. It is possible to be angry, but not sinful. And this is often referred to as righteous anger. And, and we typically will go to Jesus who's cleansing the temple because the, 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 the people of Israel had turned the temple from a house of prayer into a den of Robbers, and so Jesus, in a righteous way, goes through and cleanses that temper and the temple, and he is angry as he's doing it, but he's not sinful. So there certainly is a place for righteous anger. 
But here's where the red flag comes in. The reality is that it is a fine line between righteous anger and sinful anger. And it is highly unlikely that your righteous anger is going to remain sinless if you don't apply gospel pressure to it. That is why the Apostle Paul borrows this teaching to encourage his readers to deal with anger quickly. So in Ephesians 4, 26, Paul says, be angry and do not sin. All right, see that? And he goes on and says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. All right, deal with it quickly because if you don't, it can fester. And one of the ways I typically you know, describe that is, you know, I don't do this so much now, but I used to be in a church where I had a lot of coffee mugs and I liked my coffee and I used to walk to the place where I'd have coffee. So in my office, I would have a lot of coffee mugs and uh, some of them would not be clean. And I would stumble across one of my coffee mugs on a shelf and it's like, oh, this has been sitting here a while, right? With some coffee left in it. And it's no longer coffee, it's something else that's growing in there, okay? And, when, and this is the picture here. If you, if you let anger fester, it becomes like this coffee mug that is full of mold. You may have set it aside, you've put it aside, but that's, it ultimately turns into this deep-rooted bitterness. Okay, so we wanna be careful with that. So Paul knows that anger that is not dealt with quickly will often take root and cause that bitterness and a lack of forgiveness. So to hear the counsel is that we should be very careful that our anger is not sinful and guard against that possibility. So that's the first thing, do not sin. Secondly, be silent, be silent. When you're angry, you tend to become free in saying what is on your mind. Don't you? You tend to give your two cents worth. I wonder if that two cents increases with inflation. Just a a thought, ponder that one. Um, You want to let people know that you are not a happy camper, right? So some of the best advice is to keep silent. When you're angry, keep silent. Keep your thoughts to yourself by keeping your mouth what? Shut. Now this is not counsel just to stuff it. Because that's not what God is calling us to do. But to be sure to think about your thoughts from a biblical perspective. And to wrestle your heart to be in line with God. This is all taking place in the arena of the heart. So we are, first of all, to not sin. To be silent. But the third thing is this to put your trust in the Lord. Let's just think through this. He says, offer right sacrifices. Well, in the Old Testament, there were a number of sacrifices, plural, that were given to atone for one's sin and to appeal for God's forgiveness. But in the New Testament, there is one sacrifice. Jesus and his death on the cross, um, that is what has been offered to atone for our sin and ultimately to bring reconciliation and forgiveness. And so uh, David and his men may have offered a number of different sacrifices today. We don't offer a number, we appeal to one. And encompassed in that one sacrifice are all the other sacrifices that Israel did through the years. So we offer this right sacrifice, then ultimately, if we are God's children, when we preach the gospel to ourselves. And in so doing, we, we put our trust in the Lord. We put our trust in the cross again. We're saying, what did the gospel say? What does the gospel mean? How does that reality that I'm a new creature created in Christ Jesus affect how I live and how I think about these things? I don't think from my flesh. I think from my spirit. And so I allow God to have his way on my heart to be thinking through things differently so that I can live now and act in a way that would honor and please him. And so often preaching the gospel to ourselves is both confrontation of our own sin, because there's, all, there's still sin that needs to be confronted, but it's also comfort for our forgiveness. And sometimes people spend too much time confronting their own sin and looking inwardly and seeing all the sin that's there and forgetting the comfort that comes through forgiveness and believing that that is true. And other people just, they they bypass the confronting of sin, they just want the the whole forgiveness. But both of those things are necessary to have balance in our heart and our understanding of what's going on, what's taking place. 
So we preach the gospel to ourselves in light of the anger we feel at injustice, at sin, so that we can be reminded by God uh, that he will repay and that he's fully aware of the antics of those who are against us. Now friends, this, is, this teaching is not promoting or calling us to repress our anger or to deny it, but it's calling us to control it. Now, Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. David says, before you act in anger, sleep on it. Some wise counsel because there are different aspects of anger that we need to apply here. Sometimes you need to deal with it quickly. Sometimes you need to be quiet and sleep on it and let God's truth fashion and shape all the bad stuff that's going on in your heart so that maybe in the next morning as you've slept on it, as you've thought about it, you will not be so feisty but you'll be able to act in wisdom. So that's dealing with anger. The next area, as far as the dealings are concerned, is with discouragement. He says, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Again, notice the nature of discouragement. There are many who say, who will show us some good? This statement is prevalent. In other words, many people are saying this. As David is looking around, it's like, you know, we're just, you know, we're getting, we're leaving our homes, we're leaving our cities, we, we just have what we have with us, things are getting bad. But it's also repeated. There are many who, literally, there are continuing to say. So this is prevalent, it's repeated, and this is what they're saying. Who will show us some good? In other words, when will God reverse the minor key of our lives? When will all the trouble stop and something good begin to happen? It always seems like bad news. When will it turn to good news? As I was marinating on this whole psalm this week, I just sat down and reflected over 2014 at all the different struggles and trials and times of distress that our Gateway family has had to endure in 2014. We've struggled with the news of disease and major surgeries. We've been devastated with the news of miscarriages. We have, we have sorrow, sorrowed over the loss of loved ones. We've prayed for parents whose children have chosen to walk in a different direction than they have been raised to walk. We've sought to give counsel and godly wisdom to marriages that are struggling, to parents who are having difficulty disciplining their children and individuals who are in the grip of sin. And, and looking at that short list, there could be every reason to be discouraged. Look at all this, what's, what's it this week? We might be saying to ourselves, this is just too hard. When are the good times gonna come? So it's good for us to look at God's answer here because it's easy to get discouraged. Here's the answer he gives. Lift up the light of your face, O Lord, upon us, O Lord. This little sentence is the last part of Aaron's priestly prayer found in Numbers chapter six and verses 24 through 26. Let me read that. Numbers six, 24 through 26. Here's what it says. You know it. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This is how we struggle. Here's, here's I want to say, in a nutshell, how we struggle with, in our discouragement and with discouragement. We want to see God rather than believe God. When I say believe, I mean believe that the Lord is the answer, that he is in control, that he is faithful, that he is righteous, that he is sovereign in carrying out his providence. But, but we tend to, especially in our discouragement, want to see tangible things happen. 
And so we wrestle in our heart because we, we, we need, in the sense, we, we've convinced ourselves we need to see those tangible things. But God is saying, listen, I want you to wrestle in your heart over to where I am and to believe. Our longing to see often eclipses our ability to believe. Our longing to see often eclipses our ability to believe. Our continual question, where is God in this, is our attempt to see. But God is calling us to see by believing. He's not calling us to believe by seeing. He's calling us to see by believing. And this is where we began our time this morning in the book of Ephesians chapter one and verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which uh, he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. To have your eyes enlightened, to be able to see here is not a physical seeing, but is to see truth. It's to see the knowledge of God. It's to see what he has called us to. It's to believe those things that God has revealed in his word. So in this sense, seeing is actually believing. But what are we seeing? We're seeing the truth of God on display, not necessarily tangible things. And so we believe what God has revealed in his word, and that helps to fashion and to shape us in our discouragement, that what we touch and what we experience in our physical bodies is not the measure of what is true and what is real. It's what God says that we hold on to. And so we wrestle ourselves to the place where we're embracing those things to be true. So like I said, once, once again, we wrestle in our hearts to get back to the place where we are thinking clearly about who God is, about what God is doing, and what God is requiring of us. These three illustrations, dealing with slander, dealing with anger, dealing with discouragement, are all examples of areas where we can wander off in our heart and we can allow our flesh to take over, or we can apply God's truth and wrestle and fight and battle in our inner being and and, and lean into what God says and and trust him and, and nestle ourselves in that. And by doing that, be able to endure or face that particular difficulty. Let's move now to this last little section that I'm calling our godly dwelling. Verse seven. You have put more joy in my heart than they have uh, when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Now what's important to recognize here is what we are about to read is not a change of circumstances, but a change of heart in the midst of distressful circumstances. Circumstances are the same. David is still stuck out in the wilderness. Son is still out to get him. But he's wrestled in his heart to get to the place where he is aligned with God. You see, that's true for us. In those times of distress, we, we, we can't just wait then to get to the place where we're applying God's truth. We need to learn that ahead, ahead of time so that when we're in that time, we are wrestling ourselves back to where God says, this is where you need to be. Circumstance hasn't changed, but your heart now is changing. And when we wrestle our hearts toward God and the promises and truths of his word to believe them, a change takes place and we find ourselves dwelling in our distress reoriented to God and our distressful circumstances, which then results in these things. Number one, a a place of joy. Look at how he describes it. You have put more joy in my heart than they have with, uh, when their grain and wine abound. In other words, when you look at 
you look at a nation, you look at a people, and their grain and their wine is abounding. What is that saying? There's a full harvest. I mean, they are celebrating because this has been great. And there is rejoicing in the land. And he says, because of you, I have more joy than that. The tangible or the intangible. God who speaks, who promises, who's proved himself. Reminding yourselves of all those things brings more joy than having this, this abundance. So this is a, a divine joy that comes straight from God. This is also an abundant joy, more than the rich and abundant harvest. And verse 13 of chapter 15 of Romans says this, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. See, this is this believing aspect that produces joy. Our joy and gladness is real because we realize that our circumstances, no matter how difficult or distressful, cannot snuff out divine joy. Just think about that. The truth of God who he is, what he's doing with you, and the joy that you can have because you are aligned with that, that doesn't change even though your circumstances go up and down. Real sorrow and divine joy coexist as friends in the circumstances of life. Real sorrow and divine joy coexist as friends in the circumstances of life. The reason you can get through is because you've been able to gain biblical perspective coming from God in the midst of that time that takes you to a place, not of happiness, but joy. You can be sad and joyful at the same time. Joy is not happiness. Joy is a confidence that God is in control, that he's aware, that he's working his plan, and that he's good in the midst of all of that. So I, 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 I hang my hat on that, and I may be sad. I may be troubled. I may be discouraged, but at the same time, I can find joy in the midst of that because he is working his plan. It's a place of joy. There's also a place of peace. Notice what it says there, verse eight. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. And friends, this is, this is incredible stuff because there's, there's this word both, right? The idea of both here is that these things are taking place at the same time. I can both lie down and sleep. I can lie down and go to sleep at once and be at peace because of God. This is a peace that cancels out anxiety. I'm sure you know what it's like to be so consumed with something that you cannot fall asleep. Ever been there? I find this happens to me when I'm on the front end of a trip and I'm supposed to be getting up early to catch a plane in the morning and so I set my alarm and I lay down in bed and I go to bed with the fear that I won't wake up in time or I'll sleep through my alarm, or that the alarm won't go off. So I'm not fully engaged in my sleep. I'm kind of sleeping, if it's a possible thing, half-heartedly, right? Because I'm anxious about what might happen. And of course, when I do finally get to sleep, Murphy's Law is that I will wake up five minutes before my alarm goes off, and then I'll be angry that I lost five minutes precious minutes of sleep because I wasn't able to sleep. I mean, you understand what is all going on in that moment. We've all experienced it for all different circumstances. But resting in God's sovereignty, especially knowing that he is in control of these things, helps me to lay down and to rest. And so distress is the enemy of sleep. But when we wrestle our hearts toward God and his word, believing we're able to sleep with a deep sleep. So it's God that allows this joy. It's God that allows this peace, this laying down 
and this immediate sleep to take place. And then finally, this all results in a place of safety. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Safety has the idea here of being in a place of security where I'm unafraid and confident. Right? Has the idea of of being in a place of security where I'm unafraid and confident. This is, this is where God has taken us from the beginning of the psalm to the end of the psalm. C.X. Spurden says it this way, he that hath the wings of God above him needs no other curtain. Interesting picture. He says, better than bolts and bars is the protection of the Lord. You are protected, you are safe. And when you're in the Lord's care, you can be confident, you can be unafraid because you're in the security of his grip. There's there's a key word here in this last statement that is so important. It's the word alone. He says, but you, talking about God, alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. It is only only in God that we can find security. It is in him alone that we find our confidence. It is only because of Jesus that we can find, uh, we can face our distress and be unafraid. And it's during those times of distress, friends, that we often slip into trusting in those substitutes, right? But, but the, the solution here is to realign ourselves during those times, wrestle ourselves into the place where we're, we're thinking things from God's perspective and we're trusting him, and the fruit of that then is joy, is peace, is dwelling in safety. This dwelling is not a physical place, but it is a a reality of what's going on in our heart, in our relationship with him. It's our circumstantial place, right? I wanna conclude with, with three thoughts here that are, I think, flowing right out of this. First one is this. The wrestling match that takes place in the heart is one between faith, trusting God and unbelief, trusting something other than God. This is what John Piper, from former pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, he says, this is the fight of faith. And the fight of faith is the battle against unbelief. And much of the battle that ranges in our heart is a battle against thoughts and ideas of unbelief rather than believing what God says to be true. So this is a fight against unbelief. Secondly, fighting with the weapon of sound theology. This takes us back to some of our discussion earlier. You fight the battle against unbelief by living a life of growth in sound theology and its application. So like I said before, the hardest place to learn that sound theology is while you're going through a time of distress. So it's important that we have the sound theology ahead of time in the normal phase of life. So I want to encourage you, if you're going through a time of normalcy, don't just ease up and say, hey, I don't need to work on this now, things are good. Rather say, it would be wise to work hard on understanding more about who God is, what God has done, what he requires of me, and how those things work together in my life. It would be really good for you to say, you know what, I've never read the Bible through in a year, or maybe I have, but I'm gonna do this together with the body of Christ. So that in doing that, I can be growing in my understanding of who God is. So that the, you might wanna say, the fodder of our food is the same stuff. So that we can talk about it and we can grow together kind of informally as well as formally with God's truth and fashion and shape a proper theology that flows out of his word. And we do that together, not just in moments of crisis. And then finally, we fight this battle in the context of prayer. Psalm four is a prayer that has become a song. We sang at the beginning here, open the eyes of my heart, I want to see you. That's not a physical sight, it's a spiritual sight, right? But it's Paul's prayer that has been put to song. 
And here we have David's prayer that's been put to song. Why? To remind us over and over and over again of this need to wrestle ourselves away from our circumstances and our flesh and to find ourselves aligned under God's truth and to fight that battle. But we do that in the context of prayer. We pray for God's help. We pray for his guidance. We pray for others that they're... Their, their eyes would be open to, to, your, to God's truth and that, that the result of that then would give them relief in what they're going through. It's a, it's a prayer that seeks to wrestle with the difficult circumstances so that the child of God can be confident, joyful, and at peace. And, and friends, if, if we could just summarize all this, in, in 2015, I can just tell you, there are gonna be times of trial there are going to be times of distress. I don't know what they are. I don't wish them upon anyone. But they're all going to be part of God's providential plan. And what are you going to do with them? David here says, I'm appealing to you, God, in my distress. He ends up saying, because of you, I find joy. I find peace. I am safe. Isn't that where you want to be? But see, this is all taking place in the arena of the heart of the one who's called godly. May that be our challenge this year is to win the battle of the heart in the distress of life. Lord, help us today to wrap our hands around what you are saying through David and his experience and Lord, how that translates into what you've called us to. Lord, we, we, we go through life and it's so easy to, to rest on other things rather than you. But Lord, even, even in this psalm, we're reminded that it's, it's you and you alone that is the means by which we have joy, we have peace, we can't be safe. We only have you in reality, there is no other place for us to turn to. And I wonder this morning, Lord, if there's someone here who doesn't know you. Well, they know about you, but they just don't, they don't know you. They've never come to the place, Lord, where they've put their faith and trust in you. I ask, Lord, that through our time this morning, Lord, that, that you, would, you would open up their eyes. You'd give them spiritual sight, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself and that they would see the beauty and the joy of of what it means to be a follower of Christ, that, that you are a great God and Savior. Lord, we, we, we only have you. That's all we need. And we're thankful for who you are in your precious name. Amen. Let's sing this song, All I Have.